Isaiah chapter 65, where Lane read for us earlier. For behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem, my joy in my people, and the voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner, being 100 years old, shall be accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them. They'll plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. For there shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord, and their offspring with them. It will come to pass that even before they call, I will answer. And while they're still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust will be the serpent's food And they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now, as we dive into this, and we go back to verse 17, I read that, and immediately I think of Revelation 21, where it says, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. First, word for word, that's what Revelation 21 says. But in doing study for it this week, I read across a couple of commentators that um, take a little different perspective on it, and it it caused me to not be dogmatic, thinking that it applies just to Revelation 21. And I'll quote one of them. It says in verse 17, it says, Here the creation of the new heaven and new earth seems to precede chronologically the setting up of the kingdom. But I think when we examine it closely, we find that the remnant has already judged the kingdom, The others have been judged and do not enter the kingdom. And the Lord Jesus made it clear in Matthew 24 when he said, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The others were to be cast into outer darkness and would not enter the kingdom. So as we look at this first verse, the point that's being made here, it's not chronological because you have the millennium first and then you have Revelation 21 and 22 which is the new Jerusalem. But the fact of the matter remains, after the uh, last bold judgment, when you have 75 to 150 pound um, hailstones plummeting the planet, and a great earthquake where every island flees away, we pretty much have the destruction of planet Earth. Wouldn't you say so? So what's going to happen, what we're going to discover this morning, is that... uh, this verse 17 is is in chronological order because the world is going to be so different from the way it is right now, and that's going to be our primary uh, topic this morning. This is really about the millennium. It has different names. Uh, One of the verses we'll quote is the regeneration, um, the thousand years. Um, Some people say, well, you know, the thousand years really only occurs once in the Bible. Mike question to that as well, how many times you want it to appear before you're going to believe it. But if you read the first 
seven verses of Revelation 20, you'll find that it occurs six times. And it is a theme that's carried throughout the Old Testament. Indeed, our, our very text this morning is calling about such a change in uh, the world itself that it's going to affect even the, uh, uh, the temperament of what's natural in, uh, well, I'll give you an example, just came to mind. Judy and I are driving to church this morning in this golden retriever right in front of us. And um, all of a sudden we see this woman running out of her house and she's chasing her dog. And I thought, I wonder if I should stop and help her. And then we looked and we saw that there was a cat in front of the dog. (laughs) So human instinct is uh, dogs chase cats and uh, lions eat sheep. And that's all going to be gone. And it's going to be such a transformation that it's talked about over and over and over again. And one of the things, gang, we've been trying to put together is not only the lateness of the hour, but as we see the signs unfolding, what is God's order? God is a God of order, and and he's so meticulous in the way he lays out things. Jesus said, it's all going to pass away, but not my word. In other words, if it's in this book, it's going to happen. Good place for an amen. amen. Nothing can change it. Uh, to the jot and the tittle, it has to come to pass. It's a foregone conclusion that as we study about the millennium this morning, it's already over. It's done with as far as the Lord's concerned, and we're in heaven. We live in this finite place in time. Uh, well, eternity is neither finite, and neither does it have time. And once we're there, everything really, really changes. As we talk about the millennium in Christendom, as a whole, they have three different views. One view is called post-millennialism. The second one, post-millennialism. The second one, amillennialism. And the third is pre. Let me just take you through all, all three of them. The first one, post-millennialism. This theory says that through the preaching of the gospel, the world will eventually embrace Christianity and become a universal society of saints. At this point, Christ will be invited to assume command and reign over man on a peaceful planet. Thus, through post-millennial belief in a literal thousand-year reign, their position is false, for the Bible clearly teaches that the world situation will become worse and worse not better and better. Now, the Lord made a point of this in Matthew 24. He says, matter of fact, unless I do return, no flesh will be saved because the tribulation will be such a time that has never been or will ever be, ever be unless he um, intervenes in world history. And besides, as I look at the world today, I don't see Christianity being the dominant force. Do you? What do you see being the dominant force? Islam. I was listening to Elijah Abraham um, just a couple days ago. Oh, what a passion he has. But he's telling me his schedule. He's going, he's going to be in Africa, and Indonesia, and then in India. And uh, because that's what's really, really on the rise. Well, then there's amillennialism. This view teaches that there will be no thousand year reign at all. 
and that the New Testament church inherits all the spiritual promises and prophecies of the Old Testament. So we call that replacement theology. The church replaces Israel and um, a millennium. There is no millennial reign. You're actually living in the millennium right now. And if I'm living in the millennium right now, I am really, really, really disappointed. <laughs> Anybody else? All right, there's one more view. Premillennialism. This view teaches that Christ will return just prior to the millennium and will personally rule during this glorious thousand-year reign. This position alone is a scriptural one and is the oldest of these three views. From the apostolic period on, the premillennial position was held by every early church father. Beginning in the 4th century, the Roman Catholic Church viewed herself as God's instrument to usher in the promised kingdom of glory. And that's why you're seeing so many denominations, Anglican, Episcopal, um, uh, a new evangelicalism that is willing to lay down their doctrinal distinctives, and they're all hopping on board to this road to Rome. We talked a little bit about it on Wednesday night. And uh, that's where the one world Religion will eventually have its headquarters. John 17, the last verse, clearly points that out. Now, why is there going to be a millennium? And um, some of the reasons, uh, first of all, because God promised this to Israel, but let's walk through a couple of them this morning. What's the purpose of this period of time? Well, first of all, Jesus said in Matthew 16, that the Son of Man shall come with the glory of his Father, with his angels, and then he shall reward everyone according to his works. One of the reasons for the millennium is those things that you do now as a Christian, the Lord's keeping track, even to the giving of a glass of water. He says, you will in no lies lose your reward. Colossians, know that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of your inheritance. Revelation 22, behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. Matthew 25, come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom, prepared from you from the foundation of the world. Jesus, when giving a parable on this very subject, tells the parable of the talents. And to one he said, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in just a few things. I'm going to cause you to be over 10 cities. Now, I actually take that literally. Uh, when I um, read from Revelation 2, this is one of the promises that he made to, the, to one of the churches. He says, hold fast what you have until I come. And he who overcomes, let's just stop and ask, what does that mean? He who overcomes. Well, if there's going to be a falling away in the last days, What the Lord is saying, don't. You persevere, you hang in there, you keep pressing on. And if you're an overcomer, you're simply one who doesn't give up on his faith in Jesus Christ. Another good place for an amen. That's an overcomer, that's what that means. He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end. What are the works? The disciple says, what works can we do, Lord? And Jesus says, this is a work that you believe on him who the Father has sent. Period. That's the work of God that you believe on on Jesus Christ. And um, 
my works, and then I will give power to you over the nations. So implied here is that the church being little, faithful in little things to the Lord now, whatever it is, he's watching. And he's going to reward accordingly. He says, but be, be wise about it. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Because your father who what sees in secret, someday is going to reward you openly. It's going to be stuff you forgot completely all about, gang. And you're going to go, Lord, you remember that, and I'm getting this for that? Go, yeah. Keeping track of all of it. In Revelation 5, I want to point out that uh, we've gone from red letters from chapter 3, 4 and 5 now, Go to black letters, we find the church in heaven. And um, in heaven, the church is singing a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and you have redeemed us by God, by your blood, out of every tribe, every tongue, peoples, and nations. And then in verse 10, he says, and you have made us kings, and priest to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. One of the reasons that there is the millennium is when the Lord establishes his kingdom that we're going to be occupied. We're going to be busy in some sort of, to me, administrative role in governing and ruling and reigning with the Lord. Clearly a promise of Revelation 5. One of the titles... Uh, the nature of this is called, in Matthew 19, it's called the regeneration. And I'll quote it. Jesus said to them, Verily I say unto you that uh, you uh, which have followed me, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, you also will sit upon the twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, I think he has the apostles in mind when he's saying that. But the word regeneration is only found twice in the English Bible. Here, and then in Titus 3, 5, where Paul is speaking of the new believer's birth. The word literally means recreation. Uh, Thus the millennium will be to the earth what salvation is to the sinner. It's been reborn. It's been regenerated. Um, And Isaiah, let's go back to our text now. We, we sort of touched on verse 17. I'd like to read verses 18 and 19 at this point. One of the attributes or the nature of uh, this 1,000-year millennial reign, in verse 18 it says, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. Uh, The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. As I was studying, um, I found some notes by Dr. J. Dwight Pentecost. Isn't that a great name? I like like it myself, personally. Uh, He compiled some of the stats that will be the nature of the millennium. And the first one is peace. And we find uh, peace and joy in verses 18 and 19. And um, the cessation of war, or finally they'll learn war no more, 
uh, through the unification of the kingdoms of the world under the reign of Christ, together with the um, economic prosperity that is inevitable when we're not spending trillions of dollars uh, for war, machines and games and technology and a strategy, all those resources, they're, they're not going to be put and they'll learn of war no more. And it's going to result not only in peace, but um, a surplus uh, for people during this period of time. One of his other things that uh, Mr. Pentecost mentions here is that we'll have full knowledge. The ministry of the king will bring the subjects into the kingdom with full knowledge. Doubtless, there will be unparalleled teaching and ministry of the Holy Spirit. It makes me think of that verse in 1 Corinthians 13, where, well, now we see it in a mirror dimly, but someday we're going to look at the Lord face to face. goes on to say, now I know in part, but then, in, in the kingdom age, then I shall know just as I am also known. And um, knowledge will have a full awareness of, of the whys and whens. This is the next one I want you to turn to the book of Romans chapter 8. And that is the curse that was placed because of Adam's sin. He said, Adam, you sinned. All you had to do before was take care of the garden. Now it's going to bring forth thorns and thistles. You're going to put it in your 40 hours. You're going to sweat. It's going to be laborious. And the earth is going to bring forth thorns and thistles. And um, the original curse placed upon creation will be removed so that there will be an abundant productivity to the earth. Animal creation will be changed so that it loses its venom. If you're in Romans 8, um, let's pick it up in verse 18. And this is for whoever is going through that fiery trial this morning. Or maybe a medical condition that you just found out about. Maybe you just lost your job. Uh, Maybe you don't know what you're going to do next. Go ahead, fill in the blank. It's an affliction, however you want to look at it. But here's Paul's attitude writing to the Romans. Verse 18. For I consider that the suffering of the present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation is eagerly waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Now think about that. Creation itself is on hold, and it's waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. You and I are sons of God. We're his offspring. 20, for the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subject it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. Um, Just watching the frequency of the birth pains take place, I don't know if you're following them, but um, earthquakes are off the chart right now. And there's warnings out, even for the San Andreas, or it's making news. I don't know if you're following any of this. 
and the, uh, I think there was 40 volcanoes going off all at one time last week. I think that was in the news bites, if I, if I remember right. So is it groaning? Is it travailing? Yeah, stage is being set. Um, verse 23, and not only they, not only, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even ourselves, groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption and redemption of our body. Do you know that it's okay to groan? Do you know that the Bible says that when you groan, that the Holy Spirit actually interprets it? He knows exactly, I'm sick of this body. And the Spirit <laughs> interprets, and he comes alongside and um, gives us Romans 8. So it's only a matter of time. It's a, light, it's a light affliction. Don't worry about it. It's not to be compared at all in any way, shape, or form for what we got coming right around the corner. For we are saved in this hope. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 says. When when you strip everything away, this is what they can't take from you. Faith, hope, and love. Good place for an amen again. Take it all away, and you still have faith, hope, and love. And that's what this says here. For we are saved in this hope. But hope that is seen, that's not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. I'm always praying for perseverance and endurance. As um, Christians are being more and more marginalized, as we see our nation going down the toilet faster than any one of us could possibly ever believe, uh, strictly from a, a... a moral basis, um, we still have hope that this is, uh, we're just pilgrims, we're just passing through, and this world is not our home, period. All right, go back to Isaiah chapter 65, and I want to pick up verse 20a and 20b because there are two different thoughts going on here. In verse 20, it says, No more shall an infant from there live to be a few days. That's 20 a, that means longevity of life. And um, the second part of this says, for the child shall die being 100 years old. And they'll say, oh, it's too bad, such a young kid, he's only 100. <laughs> and he passed away. So we go back before the flood, and we have guys like Methuselah, I think it's 969, he lived to be that old. Adam lived into his 900s, and we just had longevity of life. And the Lord is going to restore that. How? I don't know. I just know that it clearly teaches here that um, um, longevity of life is there. Now 20b says, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be a curse. So Now we've just learned something about the millennium, and that is no unsaved person will enter the millennium. Now let me just remind you, Matthew 25, the separation from the sheep and the goats. Tribulation is over. And according to Daniel chapter 12, we have this 45-day period of time from the time that the Lord returns until it says, blessed is he who comes to the 1,335th day. Question, why are they blessed? Because they go into the kingdom. Because they're saved. 
but those who are not saved go into outer darkness. That's Matthew 25. No unsaved person will enter the millennium. However, millions of babies will evidently be born to saved but uh, moral Israelites and Gentile parents who survived the tribulation and entered into, into the millennium in that state of mortality. So you can have a baby that's born, but that baby that's born isn't yet saved. As they mature, some of these babies will refuse to submit their hearts to the new birth. Through their outward acts, will be subject to existing authority. That's why it says the Lord's gonna rule them with a rod of iron. And um, as beautiful as the millennium is going to be, it's still not heaven. Sin will still be possible. How do I know? Well, Isaiah chapter 65 says the sinner being 100 years old, shall be accursed. Sin will be possible during the thousand years. Certain families and certain nations will refuse to go up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Now we could, we're gonna to go to Zechariah a little bit later, but in Zechariah 14, it says, if Egypt doesn't come up and worship at the Feast of Tabernacles, no rain to them. So they're actually, curse is gonna be placed upon them. So, during the, the millennium, uh, the, the ability to sin will be there and who won't be there because the tempter or Lucifer will be absent and because the revelation of the Lord will be greater, those who have been thus smitten will serve as an example to those who will be tempted to imitate them. Now just think of this. I've given this some thought. Because a lot of times people like passing the buck by saying, uh, I, I am the way I am because I grew up with an abusive father or abusive mother or I lived on the south side of Chicago and that's why I am the way that I am. And to me, every person has a free will. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? You can choose to follow in, in um, an abusive father's relationship or you can choose not to. So I've never bought into that. I believe God's gonna hold us accountable not from what structure of society we came out of, but whether or not we chose to accept him as our Lord and Savior. That's a good place for an amen. Can I give you the ultimate proof? Here we have a perfect environment in the millennium. It's perfect. Here we have a perfect king. He's perfect. And even having a perfect environment and a perfect king we still find that in the heart of somebody who's not born again, they have not been regenerated, they have not accepted the Lord as their personal Lord and Savior, that they, when the Bible says, my heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, who can know it? In the millennium too. Until when? Until they decide to choose for, of their own free will, I am a sinner. I need to accept Jesus Christ. Now, um, all right, let's move on past that one. Another one here is uh, there's a couple promises that God made, Old Testament co- covenants, that require there to be a millennium. Uh, the first one we call the Abrahamic covenant, covenant to Abraham. God promised Abraham two basic things. One, that his seed Israel would become a mighty nation, Genesis 12. 
and that his seed Israel would someday own Palestine. That was to Abraham. But he's also got a covenant to David, and to David, uh, here's the promise, it's a threefold promise, that from David would come an everlasting throne. From David would come an everlasting kingdom, and that from David would come an everlasting king. These have to be fulfilled. There are conditional covenants and promises, and then there's unconditional ones. These two that I mentioned are unconditional. David actually got his when he wanted to build a house for the Lord. And uh, Prophet Nathan said, go for it, David. Do all that's in your heart. And he's walking home, and the Lord tapped him on his shoulder and said, you didn't talk to me about that one, Nathan. Now you gotta go back, tell David, he can't build me a house. But I tell you what, tell him this. Tell him I'm gonna build a house for him. And what he meant by that is that he was from his seed, from his lineage, uh, would actually come the Messiah, and that his house would be one that would endure forever. Jesus is the son of David, and that's where those covenants are kept. The millennium will have a monarchy. Democracies would be okay if we had perfect leaders. Amen? Last time I watched TV, that's not happening. <laughs> but in the millennium, the Lord... Jesus will, of course, be the king supreme, but there are passages that suggest that he will graciously choose to rule through a vice regent, and that vice regent will be none other than King David himself. Note the following scriptures. If you're taking notes, there's three of them, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea. The one from Jeremiah says, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, who I will raise up from among them. Now, Jeremiah wrote these words 400 years after David was already dead, so he could not have been referring to his earthly reign. The one from Ezekiel. I will set up one shepherd over them. He shall feed them. Even my servant David, he shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And then the one from Hosea. Afterwards, the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. That comes from Hosea. If we take these passages literally, David will once again sit upon the throne of Israel. He will thus be aiding in his rule there. I don't know about you, but just think for a second that you're actually going to have an opportunity I'll probably be a long line, right? But I would love to sit down and talk with David. Wouldn't you love to sit down and talk to David? Well, that's going to happen. Let's move from the king to the geology or the planet itself and how it's actually changed. And to do this, we're going to turn to two scriptures. Let's go to, first of all, to the book. We're in Isaiah, so let's go back to chapter 2. And just read two or three verses there. Isaiah chapter 2, picking it up in verse 2. It'll come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations will flow into it. Many people will come and say, come, 
Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He'll teach us his ways, and we will walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations, and he will rebuke many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Amen to that. You know that this, these uh, beating the swords in the plowshare is a plaque that sits out of uh, the United Nations. The irony, the hypocrisy for that matter. Uh, that is yet not applying now, applicable now. No, this is during the millennium. Zechariah, as I often say, is one book right before the end of the Old Testament, before Malachi. Zechariah talks about it too. And we're also going to want to look at one in Ezekiel. But let's look at the one in Zechariah, verses 4 through 10. We frequent this often because we've been studying about um, the Lord returning after the Battle of Armageddon, going to Petra or Basra, but then he goes to Jerusalem, and just like the angels promised the disciples in Acts chapter 1, this same Jesus that you see taken up is going to return, the exact same one. So in verse 4 here, this has not happened yet. In that day, his feet, Jesus' feet, will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two, east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north and half towards the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain's valley shall reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And thus the Lord my God will come and all of the saints with you. It will come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The light will be diminished. It will be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time it will happen that it will be light. And in that day it shall be that living waters flow from Jerusalem half towards the eastern sea, that would be the Dead Sea, and half towards the Western Sea, the Mediterranean, in both summer and winter it shall occur. And the Lord shall be king over all of the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name. Now verse 10 is what I want to gravitate towards because it says, and the land, and the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem will be raised up and inhabited, and her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate and from the tower of Hananiel to the king's wine press. Um, And I will leave it there. What I'm suggesting is a change in the geology of the whole planet. Now, let's turn to the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 48, and let me just, in Ezekiel, from 35 to the end of the book, it really does follow a chronological order. 
What do we have in 36 and 37? 36 and 37 is all about Israel being regathered back into the land. And that's what both chapters are about. It's going to make it like the Garden of Eden, and um, it'll be fruitful. So we can just check those off. 36, 37, fulfilled. 38 and 39 we call the Ezekiel War. I believe the stage is set for that war to happen at any time. The two main players are Russia and Iran. And they are the ones that head up and all of chapter 38 is the war itself and all of chapter 39 is basically the cleanup after this battle. Now, once you get to chapter 40, 40 through 48 is all kingdom age stuff. So we have a chronology. Uh, Israel back in the land, the Ezekiel 38 war, the cleanup 39. But beginning with chapter 40, it is incredible detail of the temple, uh, who gets what. That's where I wanted you to turn to um, uh, chapter 40. Well, as long as we touched on um, what we just did about in Zechariah about the Lord and water flowing. 47 gives us a little bit more detail. He says, he brought me back to the door of the temple and it was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple from the front of the temple that faces flowing under the right side of the temple south to the altar. And it's a gradual measuring. He first walks through it and it's up to his ankle. And then in verse four, he measures it and it's up to his waist. And then in verse five, he measures it again and he is so deep he has to swim across it. So what happens with these waters down in verse 10, the Dead Sea is gonna be healed. It says in verse 10, it will be that the fishermen will stand by it from Engedi to Engalam, and they will be a place for the spreading of the nets. There's nothing alive in the Dead Sea. Been there many times. You can float on it, but that is about all. But it will be healed. And then 48, basically, what we have in 48 is the d- division where, for the first time, Israel's Borders will once again um, be enlarged. Um, There will be a redistribution of the 12 tribes of Israel during the millennium. The land itself will be divided into three areas. Some tribes will occupy the northern area, five the southern ground, and between these two areas there's a section called the Holy Oblation. That is that portion of ground which is set apart for the Lord. So if you look at verse eight here, uh, the first eight verses explain Dan, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Ephraim, and where their borders are gonna be. But when you get to verse eight, it says, but the border of Judah from the east side to the west shall be a district which you will set apart. It'll be 25,000 cubics wide in length, the same as one of the other portions from the east side to the west, with the sanctuary in the center, the district that you shall set apart for the Lord, shall be 25,000 cubits in length and 20,000 in width. To these, namely the priests, and is called this holy district. So between 
the northern, say the tribes and the ones in the south, there's a central section where the people from around the world will come to this huge area that's set aside just for the Lord and for him to be worshipped. The temple itself, if um, we did a quick survey, I was interested because um, I got the time frames on the different temples. Of course, when Moses was on Mount Sinai, the Lord gave him instructions for the whole, the whole deal. How the temple should be built, how the Ark of the Covenant should be built, so on and so forth. Uh, we call it the Wilderness Tabernacle or Moses' Tabernacle. It existed from 1500 B.C. to 1000 B.C. Then, as I mentioned earlier, David's heart desire was to build the Lord a house. He was convicted. I live in this beautiful house of cedar and the, and the God of Israel and the Ark of the Covenants behind some tent. And Solomon was allowed to build the temple. That's First Kings 8. Um, the first tabernacle lasted about 500 years. Um, Solomon's temple lasted from 1000 B.C. to 586 B.C. And that's, of course, when Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed Solomon's temple. A little more than 400 years we had Solomon's temple. And then when, when they came back under Zerubbabel during Nehemiah's time and Ezra's time, we find that uh, we have, they call it different things, Zerubbabel's temple later, they called it Herod's temple because he made it much larger. And that existed from 516 B.C. to 70 A.D. when the Romans came in and destroyed that temple. There has not been one since that period of time. That one lasted about 600 years. Now, the Antichrist will make a covenant with Israel, and obviously it will involve building the temple. How do I know? Because it talks about the sacrifices being taken away. Second Thessalonians 2 says the Antichrist is go, going into the temple so that he will show himself as God sitting in the temple. It's called the abomination of desolation. So the next temple has not yet been built. But I, I put up on the screen a couple of weeks ago, the rabbis saying it's imminent. They're looking towards this fall. And we, we call that the tribulation temple. Obviously, it will be destroyed at the end of the tribulation with that great earthquake, which brings us to the millennial temple. Um, Ezekiel talks about it from chapter 40 to 48. And uh, this temple will last for 1,000 years. So there's sort of an order of the temples themselves. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 65 and finish up our last two verses. In 24 and 25, it says, It will come to pass that before they even call, I will answer. And while they're still speaking, I will hear. Again, the wolf will lay with the lamb and feed together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. Dust shall be the serpent's food, and they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. We have evidently reinstituted here sacrifices that will actually be taking place during the millennial reign. As we've already seen, 
Animal hostilities are no longer yet, as we've already seen several pieces of furniture in the Old Testament temple will be missing in the Millennial Temple. However, the brass altar of sacrifice will again be present. There are at least four Old Testament prophecies which speak of animal sacrifice in the Millennial Temple, in Isaiah, in Zechariah, and Jeremiah. But the question is, why the need of these animal blood sacrifices during the golden age of the millennium? To answer this, one must attempt to project himself into the of this fabulous future period. Here is an age with no sin, no sorrow, no suffering, no sickness. Satan will be separated. The point is simply this. During the millennium, remember there's people that are growing up that aren't saved. So how do you witness? We have witnessing tools, don't we? We have gospel tracts. We have Bible teachers on radio. Um, We have God's word we share with them that you must be born again. But here, um, in spite of the perfect environment, these kingdom kids will need the new birth. As sons and daughters of Adam, they too, as all others, will require eternal salvation. But how can these children be reached? What object lessons can be used? Here, is a generation which will grow up without knowing fear. They'll never experience pain. They won't know hatred. They won't be taking dope. Or nobody will be in jail. This is one reason that the sacrificial system will be reinstituted during the millennium. These sacrifices will function, number one, as a reminder to the necessity of the new birth, as an object lesson of the costliness of our salvation, as an example of the awfulness of sin, and as an illustration of the holiness of God. Now we currently do this, and we're going to be doing it next week. Even though Jesus died one time, right? 2,000 years ago, what do we still do every first Sunday of the month? Well, we have communion. We're not re-sacrificing the Lord, but it's a teaching tool He says, I don't ever want you to forget it, so I want you to do this in remembrance of me. There's no time schedule. You could have communion every day if you wanted to. But collectively, as a body here, um, we decide to do it once a month. So in this glorious age to come, oh, Lord, when we praise thy kingdom come, thy will be done, takes on a whole different meaning. And, you know, as we see the day approaching, what does it tell us to do? Hebrews said, don't forget, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That's what we need to hear because I see people gravitating away from the church, and sometimes for good reason. But um, Hebrews clearly says, don't forsake the, the assembling together, the fellowship of the saints. And then it says this. And make sure you do it even more as you see the day approaching. Simple question. Do you see the day approaching? What does the Bible tell us to do? Fellowship all the more. Why? Because I need it. <laughs> uh, and I suppose the, what had never been brought up unless Paul figured we all need it. I want to go back to close with one verse from Isaiah 65 as we 
are finishing up the book. It's dark now, gang. It's not going to get any better. It's only going to get worse. Isn't that great news? (laughs) Won't you feel happy for the rest of the day? Jesus said this is just the beginning of sorrows. And once the birth pain starts, they're only going to intensify, and it's only going to get worse. But here's the good news. In verse 19 of chapter 65, it says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and join my people. Then it says, the voice of weeping will be no longer, implying what? Well, there's a whole lot of weeping going on. And a whole lot of my spirit being quenched and grieved as I see our country, as I see what's happening to the church and our willingness to compromise with truth for the sake of unity. Uh, It has to be truth over unity every single time, guys. And uh, the scriptures are so clear about this admonition. But it says in uh, Psalm 30, verse 5, it says, Weeping may endure for a night. It's the nighttime right now, and it's getting darker. But then it says, but joy comes in the morning. Yeah, we're going to go through this period of time. And uh, the Lord will come for his church before the tribulation. Um, But at the end of all that, we enter into this joy that we read here in verse 19 I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The Lord's going to joy in you, and you are going to joy in him. Do you know that there's actually a song written about what I just read? And everybody here thinks it's a Christmas song, but it is not. It's called Joy to the World. Do you know that's not a Christmas song? Do you know that it's a millennium song? The real meaning of Joy to the World nor thorns infest the ground, no more let sin and sorrow grow. He rules the world with truth and grace. None of that happened during the Lord's time. It's going to happen in the future. Joy to the world. Let's stand. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. And as we make our way through the scriptures, we see, Lord, and as we end up Isaiah, that you are going to let your word run its course. Nothing can be changed. But, Lord, we thank you for the hope that when all is said and done, we still have the faith, hope, and love. Lord, we thank you so much for your word that brings us this hope and gives us those things that you want us to know, at least for right now. So Lord, as we close this morning, we anticipate, look forward to, long for, eagerly await this change that you promised in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.